Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, guys. Hope you're all uh, okay. We're in Genesis 49 tonight, so if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn there, uh, turn there with me. Genesis 49. When I was a, a teenager in high school, um, or in, in primary school, one of them, our... Um, <laughs> It's all a blur. Uh, our, our class went to go and visit like, a, a police station in our, in our nearby town. We went to go and uh, visit them and uh, had a word with like, the police officers and they gave us a tour around. And then they gave us this exercise where they sat us down in one of the rooms and gave us like, a, a piece of paper in front of us. And on there was, were a picture or pictures of different people. And they were all suspects to a crime. And they, and they gave us a couple of crimes that had been committed recently. And they said, can you, can you try and work out or try and think who who committed these crimes from these headshots of people. So we kind of sat there, and, uh, and, and as you probably expect, we probably picked the, the dodgiest-looking people um, out, out of the list and said, oh, yeah, uh, it was this guy, you know, like, oh, someone committed arson, oh, it's definitely this fella here, you know, or somebody committed, somebody committed fraud, or it's this dodgy-looking girl down in here. Um, so, we get, so we gave our answers back. Uh, and it turned out that actually all of the pictures on the piece of paper, they were all actors, that none of them had ever committed a crime, and that the, the only crime that had been committed was us judging them and making a stereotype based on what they looked like. But it's based on what, we looked, on what they looked like, we thought that they were more, more or less likely to have committed a crime. Uh, and it says something about uh, the way that people look or the way, about the way that people th- uh, think and, and act. We, we make stereotypes about their lives and, and that their lives can often characterize certain things. And in Genesis 49, what's happening is that Jacob is approaching the end of his life and he gathers, he gathers all of his sons together. He gathers all of his sons together and he, and he prays and prophesies over them. And each prophecy that he gives them reveals the, the character or the nature of, e- of, each, of each son and of what their descendants will be like. And it kind of gives them a bit of a stereotype. And that's what, what we're going to be looking at tonight, okay? So yeah, turn that with me to 49. Now, jo- Jacob has a lot of sons, and we're not going to go through every one of them tonight, because we'll be here till tomorrow morning. So we're just going to pick out a few that Jacob seems to pay particular attention to, um, and then we will go from there. So the first one that he, he g- gets to is Reuben. Now, Reuben is the firstborn. Now, he doesn't do them in age order. He does them by order of... of uh, uh, of their mother, um, but he gets to Reuben first. Uh, and of Reuben, he says this. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed and defiled it, onto my couch and defiled it. So this is the guy who's, in, in modern-day world, is... The, uh, climbing the corporate ladder mercilessly. He's undermining his boss all the time and he's elbowing anyone that gets in the way. This guy is power hungry. And that's what Reuben is. Reuben is power hungry. Or he's the bully you, you knew at school who exerted his power and authority over everyone just to get what he wanted. You see, Reuben was a strong and mighty kind of guy. When Jacob starts out his prophecy over Reuben, it starts out pretty good. You know, you're strong and mighty. You are my firstborn. Hey, this sounds pretty good. Reuben's starting to perk up a little bit. But then it suddenly goes downhill. He says, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. You see, Reuben was a strong and a mighty kind of guy. But then he, he went and slept with his father's, father's concubine, his father's mistress, Jacob's mistress, um, back in Genesis 35. And it seems that his power went to his head, that his authority, his strength, his desire for power went to his head. 
And the seriousness of Reuben's sin meant that actually he lost his birthright. So Reuben, being the firstborn of Jacob, would naturally inherit two-thirds of all of Jacob's inheritance. But because of his sin, because he slept with his father's mistress, he lost that. He forfeited his birthright because of that. And instead, Jacob gives the birthright, so all of the possessions, all of the money, or two-thirds of it at least, to Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Think about that. What you were inherited to suddenly gets taken away from you because of a grave mistake. John MacArthur says this of Reuben. Whatever dignity and majesty he might have had, his tribe received scant mention in Israelite history and produced not one judge, not one prophet, not one military leader or other important person. So actually in the history of the Israelites, Reuben actually is very insignificant. doesn't really do much. You know, it shows that if you are power hungry, then you will abuse power and, and your authority can't, can't be trusted. That You can't be trusted to have authority and power if you're going to abuse it, if you're power hungry and you're going to abuse it. A great man once said, with great power comes great responsibility. And that great man was Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. <laughs> but it's very true. So Reuben is characterized as being power hungry, but he's also characterized as being turbulent and unstable. Jacob says, Turbulent as the waters, unstable as the waters, just like when a waterfall crashes over and all the waters foam up and, and froth up and they're flying in every single direction. That's just like what Reuben was. Like a bee buzzing around, going in all sorts of di- directions. You, you don't really know what t- decisions it's going to make. Very unstable, very turbulent in life. And maybe that's you tonight, that you're unstable in your decisions. You know, Reuben's mistake cost him his birthright. And maybe you're uh, on the edge of making a mistake in life or that you're playing around with sin in life or you're coming very, very close to the edge where it's going to cost you everything or it's going to cost you a lot in life. And you need to turn away from that edge and you need to start making more stable decisions. We need to be wary of success, authority, and power because it can mess us up. The sin within us perverts it and misuses it for our own self-interest doesn't it? It's not the fact that power and authority and success are evil in their own right, but we just pervert them. The sin within them takes that which is good, that which is holy, and perverts it for our own use. You know, a group of researchers did a study in the US, and they found that drivers of expensive cars were more likely to cut people up and less likely to stop at pedestrian crossings than drivers of cheaper cars. Fancy that. So if you know, a Ferrari's coming down the road and you're at Zebra Crossing, then don't step out, you know, just in case. Another study found that when, when college students were given permission to take suites that had been reserved for children, richer college students took twice as many as, as poorer college students. They just felt like they just had an advantage. They felt like they had the permission to take that which wasn't really theirs and just to, just to use it and abuse it. It said that the researchers believed power has a somewhat dehumanizing effect on people and that people are more self-focused and less empathetic when they feel powerful. You know, when someone looks at you, would they characterize you as being power hungry? That you simply try too hard to win people's favor? That you're always battling to win their approval? That you're striving for that position or that title? Or that you're collecting letters after your name like it's a hobby? Or that you're eager to let people know that you have authority over them, whether it's at at work or at home or even in church. Like Reuben, you treat those above you with a lack of respect and and a lack of honor. And you look for any opportunity to exalt yourself. 
Perhaps you're more bothered about your little mini kingdom than you are about God's kingdom. Or when someone looks at your life, would they consider you and characterize you as being turbulent and unstable? Like they can't really trust you with a decision because you're more in and out than the hokey-cokey is in and out. One day you're here and you're fully committed and yeah, you're fully go and then next day you know where to be seen and you're, you're a little bit unstable. Well, that's Reuben. He was power hungry. He was unstable and he was turbulent and it cost him a lot. And I don't want it to cost us guys anything either. Next, Jacob goes on to Simeon and Levi. In verse 5, it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger. So fierce. Cursed be their fury. So cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. You know, these are the brothers that when, when, their, when their sister was, uh, Dinah was, was raped, that, um, they, they went into the city of Shechem where, where the, the rapist was from and they just took their swords and they just killed every single male in the whole city. You know, they, they, they thought they were acting justly but then they, they just totally took it um, above board. They were filled with fury and cruelty. These were some angry dudes. You know, there was, a, there was a guy in my old church, uh, he, he was really, really short, and he used to walk around with a constant frown on his face. You know, he was, he was always well-dressed, he probably had a bit of money about him, he drove like a massive Land Rover, probably compensating for his stature, uh, but he, he was really, really short, and I used to look at him and think, wow, that is one angry little man, you know, and I still think of him today, I don't even know what it was called, you know, uh, I don't even know what he did, or anything about him, I just thought, he looked angry, all the time, you know, and I've got another family member who's like that. We need to be wary of angry and what it makes us do. Jacob says uh, of Simeon and Levi, let me not join their assembly, uh, let, let, me not, let me not enter their council. Jacob is saying that he can't take advice from them. He can't, he can't be associated with them because of their anger, because of their fury, because of their wrath. You know, anger seriously affects our judgment and decision-making processes because when we're angry, when we're so, when we're so furious about a situation, we can't make a, a correct decision because, because everything is centered on us. We're angry because, because something has offended us or that our preferences have not been met. That's why in Proverbs it says, don't associate with an angry or a hot-tempered man. Like you, you, can't, you can't associate them. You can't, you can't be joined to that person because they're unstable. That anger in your life, you're going to burn the bridges that you have left. It said that they... They hunt hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Simeon and Levi went, in, went into that city and they killed all those males. They also hamstrung all the oxen, which is basically where they, where they cut the back tendon of all the oxen's legs and basically cripple the oxen. Not for any gain, not for any profit, but just for fun. Just because they're, angry, they're just angry dudes and they just want to have a lash out and so they just do something reckless. You know, perhaps you struggle to show empathy and real compassion to people because actually... People characterize you as have one as having a, a heart of stone because you don't, don't actually really care about people. Like you struggle to get emotional or you struggle to show a sense of care because actually you don't really care all that much. Your anger shows that you're more concerned with your own matters than you are with others. The effects of this, you know, J Jacob says at the end of this, his prophecy to these guys that they will be scattered in Jacob and dispersed in Israel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in this nation. You know, the, the effects of this is that the tribe of Simeon would later become one of the smallest tribes in Israel, one of the smallest, and that it would ha even have to share land with another tribe, Judah. 
you know, Moses, Moses also leaves out Simeon when he blesses the tribes towards the end of his life. He just totally emits them from his blessing. And it may be linked to this. The tribe of Levi, by God's undeserved grace, becomes the, the priestly tribe. And you can see how God's grace is just there, that, that this priestly tribe came from such an angry dude, such a furious dude. You know, guys, are you developing the reputation of being an angry dad or an angry husband? Do your family and friends have to walk on eggshells around you because, because they have to be so careful about what they say and what they do because you, you could fly off in a rage at any moment? Or girls, are you always complaining and, and getting angry at your husbands whenever they make a mistake, criticizing them in public and to your kids? You've got to watch it because you will produce angry children and they will produce angry grandchildren if you don't tame that temper. Or perhaps you're the girl who's always got a bee in your bonnet about something. You've always got a complaint, always critiquing everything, always got something to say. You know, when you're not arguing with someone at work, you're arguing with someone at church. And if it's not someone at church, then it's your husband. And if it's not your husband, then it's your kids. And if it's not your, your kids, then it's got to be your dog and your cat because you've got to be arguing with something, right? You know the people. Not in this church, clearly. But as Steve says, in the church down the road. Don't become characterized as an angry or a moody person. Don't become Mr. Temper. Don't become Mrs. Moody, because that will characterize your life, and that's what you'll become known as. Let's jump down to the next one. Jacob then uh, later on talks about Issachar, Issachar the lazy. Verse 15, it says, Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. It says between, uh, lying down among two sheep pens, that can also be translated as between two saddlebags, which I think is probably the more accurate translation. When he sees how good his resting place is and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. You know, the tribe of Issachar is the one who got complacent and comfortable in life and was too easily subdued. You know, here Issachar and his tribe are, are characterized by a lazy and a complacent attitude and be, basically be, by becoming a doormat of a people. This is the 40-year-old bloke who lives in his mum's basement, you know, can't really hold down a, even a part-time job, you know, claims for five dis different disability benefits, sleeps all day and plays video games all night. Now, that's, that's no one really that you'll know or ever know. That's a, a highly stereotyped kind of person. But perhaps you're the guy who's allowed people to take advantage of you in life. That you've, you've become a little bit of a loser in the world's eyes or a little bit of a doormat. And you've developed that reputation or that caricature in life. Or that you're living a lazy and subdued lifestyle. That you've developed a victim mentality to the, to the things around you. And that you've allowed your circumstances and situations to kind of beat you down in life. And you've become a victim of your circumstances. You've become a slave of your, your circumstances, a slave of your bad habits, a slave of your mental health. You know, but the thing is, God doesn't want you to live like a slave. You know, the Bible says that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, that, that Christ has set you free so that you can live a life of freedom. And, and Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's right. God doesn't want you to live like a slave. He wants you to live like a freed person who's not subdued and, and, and the victim of, of, of life, but one who is living victoriously. So you've got to stop bending your shoulder to the burdens of life. You've got to stop tapping out. You've got to... Start living independently, stop sponging off others. You've got to start walking in that victory that Christ has claimed for you. Because you can, and you can claim it by faith. 
You see, the risk is that if, that if you don't change, then you, no one's going to give you opportunities. You're not going to succeed in life, and you won't experience uh, the grace and the blessing and the favor of God as you should and as God desires. And it's not that that life is just beating you down, but that you're just bending your shoulder to it and, and allowing it to beat you down when you actually a lot of it is your decision-making. Or perhaps you feel that actually you're on the other end of the spectrum. You know, you're on the other end of the spectrum. Like you feel like you're quite a busy individual. And, so you, and you go around telling everyone that you're so busy and that you've got so much on. You know, I asked over a friend who, who, who talked to me about how busy he was all the time. And uh, it sounded like he was so busy because I got tired even just from talking to him about how busy he, he sounded like he was. But the thing is, he was a student. He wasn't married. He didn't have any kids. And he was involved in a couple of things at church. And yet, he, went, he constantly went around saying how busy he was. And even when he went into his job, he just created loads and loads of work for him. And a lot of his busyness was just like the, work, the extra workload he created for himself. And a lot of us can live like that. We just do things which are meaningless and that just exert so much energy and effort instead of doing things which are fruitful and productive for our lives and for others. So perhaps that's you and you need to train yourself to be able to carry more responsibility and burdens in life. So is your life characterized by a lazy and a complacent attitude? So there's, so there's some of the bad. And then Jacob then gets to Joseph. Joseph the victor. So we've had Reuben, the power hungry. Issachar, sorry, Simeon and Levi, the twins of temper. Issachar the lazy. And then Joseph, who we all know we've been journeying with for a while. He's a, a bit of a victor. It says in 49 verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. So that's, that's probably, probably describing the events um, at the start of Joseph's life when his brothers sold him into slavery and then he went through all of his ordeals and uh, ended up in prison. That's uh, a bit of a description of his life. But his bow remained steady, his strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with the blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and the womb. So Joseph has had a near perfect track record so far. You know, he's, he's endured faithfully and, and, and in a holy manner through his many ordeals and trials. I mean, you, you look at his life and you just, you're just in awe and, and you're just wowed by how this guy has just persevered so faithfully under, underneath such suffering and hardship and how he's come out the other end and he's come out victorious and like, wow, it's amazing. It's amazing. So this guy is like the, like the Cambridge graduate. You know, he's a pastor of a mega church. You know, he's got a beautiful wife and beautiful kids. And he's got 10,000 followers on Instagram. You know, he's like, like the perfect guy. Maybe, that, maybe that, that's how you feel tonight. Not like you're the perfect guy in here. But that you feel incredibly blessed in life. And you, you feel like God's um, given you a, a great life. Well, in your career, you have four kids in great for 15 grandkids, or you've traveled the world, or you've grown in Christian maturity, and you feel like, you feel like you're But you know what? The blessing and the victory that um, was, on, was on Joseph's life was because of God's strength within him, not because of his own strength. And the blessing and the victory on your life is because of God's strength, not your own strength. It says, it says in, well, Jacob says this, 
but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber. Why? So he remained faithful. He remained holy. He remained blessed and victorious. Why? Because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty, because, 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 because. You're only so successful and blessed and victorious in life because of God's grace and mercy that has been poured out for you, that you've got so much to thank God for. You know, you think your prosperous career is based on your, your good work ethic, but you only have that good work ethic because God nurtured you within a stable Christian family. And actually, a lot of people didn't have that. Or that you think you've grown in a sense of Christian maturity, and you look down your judgmental nose at someone's liberal theology, when actually only a few years ago you were where they're at, and that you've only grown because God has put um, you know, sound Christians alongside you to disciple you and to grow you. You've got a lot and have much to thank God for. Or you can't understand why people are so timid and fearful in life, but it's because of you had a safe uh, and a, a loving upbringing, and you weren't exposed to domestic violence and abuse like other people were. But yet you can't understand that in other people. And you think, why, pe- why are people stepping up? Why aren't people as bold as I am? You know, we, we may think that with Joseph's success and track record, he is the perfect candidate to bear the messianic promise. You see, what's going on here is that Jacob has all his, all his sons in front of him. And, and if you don't know, Jacob is, is carrying the messianic promise of God, the promise given to Abraham that Christ would come from him and that all nations would be blessed through him. That was given to Abraham, passed on to Isaac, then on to Jacob. And Jacob is carrying that promise and he's about to give it to one of his sons, one of his many sons. And we're like, okay, who's he going to give it to? You know, who is it going to go to? And the thing is, we look at, we look at the, the lineup of these people, just that, like I looked up at the, the lineup of the people on that piece of paper, and we see the good, and we see the bad. And we think, it's got to be Joseph. Joseph has surely got to receive this blessing. I mean, he's, he's lived like a perfect life. He's just been a superstar. He's been, he's been great. I mean, it, we're in awe of how he has lived. But you know what? Joseph doesn't get the Messianic promise. He doesn't get it. He's not given it. He's blessed. I mean, don't get me wrong. Jacob's prophecy, prophecy of him is, is really positive. He's saying that he's blessed and that he's abundant, that he's, his tribe will be fruitful. Really blessed, but he doesn't get it. You may have, you know, some of you who are eagle-eyed may have noticed that I've missed out someone, quite a large chunk in this, in the description of these sons. We've seen the bad, we've seen the good, and now it's time for the undeserved. Let's look at Judah. Judah the redeemed. In Genesis 49 it says, in verse 8, Jacob says this of Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares arouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So here in this passage, Jacob passes on the messianic promise, the, the, the serpent crusher promise from himself and onto Judah. So Judah is first of all described as a lion by Jacob and let's remember that Jesus is described in Revelation as, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I mean, so all of these links are, are linking up. 
And it, Jacob says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. What he's saying is that all of the, all, all, all of the kings, all of the, like the kingly lines are going to come from Judah. So David was going to come from Judah. And then one day Christ, the true king, is going to come from Judah. That, 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 that scepter, that, that staff of rule, will not depart from his line until, until it's fulfilled in Christ. And actually in verse, in verse 10, in the New King James and in other translations, it has a, is a, um, a different translation. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a, law give, not, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, you, you might read, this, read that in a different translation and think, okay, who is this Shiloh? You know, it sounds like someone's about to come on the scene. Who is this fellow Shiloh? Well, that is like a foreshadow of Christ. Shiloh means peace and tranquility. And it's basically like a, like a foreshadow or, or, an, or an epithet of Christ. That Christ is the, the prince of peace, the peace of tranquility, who will command the obedience of the nations, and his rule will be one of peace and tranquility. So here Jacob is passing on that promise to, to Judah. But the crazy thing is, is, is that if you look at Judah's life, he totally does not deserve this totally does not deserve it. Now, if you remember, Judah is the guy who came up with the plan to sell Joseph as a slave in the first place. So he's the original slave trader. Okay, and then he, and then he, he goes away from home, he kind of abandons his family and, and marries into a, a foreign family. And he gets his daughter-in-law pregnant, thinking she's a prostitute. Not, not a great start, not a great guy, you know. And then, but then, finally, in, in a, I think in four, chapter 44, when he comes to, to Egypt, with, ben, with Benjamin, he ends up giving himself, giving his life in, replace, in place of Benjamin when he's before Joseph. Because, because Joseph is demanding Benjamin's life and saying, you know, Benjamin's going to be a slave. Benjamin's gonna, got to go to prison. And, and Judah says, no, like, I'm going to give myself for him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this Christ-like thing, even though he didn't know who Christ was. But he showed Christ within himself, and he basically came to a place of repentance. And right there at that moment, Judah was kind of redeemed. Not in kind of like the, the sinful sense of, you know, like Christ redeems us from our, our sin, but kind of God was like redeeming his nature. God was re- redeeming this leader within him and saying, actually, like Judah is a wretch, but I'm going to make a leader out of him. So Judah is the redeemed. You see, what characterizes Judah's life is, is redemption. What characterizes Judah's life is the good news of Christ. So when you look at Judah's life, you, 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 see that you see the wrong, you see the bad, but you see the redemption, you see grace poured out upon this guy. And that's what needs to characterize our life as well. The guy on the screen behind me, behind me is a guy called Brian Welch. And he was the bass guitarist of a band called Korn, which was a, a heavy metal band which sung about death and darkness and all things bad. But this guy had a radical encounter with God and became, became a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, and, and, and he lives that today just like Judah. Man, he lived such a life of darkness and self-focus and he was just redeemed into a life of purpose. You see, God does not give the messianic promise to Joseph who, 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 who victored, who, sorry, who, who uh, was victorious you know, and, and succeeded in life. He doesn't give it to him. He gives it to Judah who didn't deserve it. He failed miserably, miserably, but yet he redeemed him from it. Judah came to a place of repentance to receive that promise. Judah was totally undeserving of the grace of God, but God poured out his grace anyway. You know, we're reminded that Jesus came for the sinner, not the righteous. Jesus came for you.
the undeserving. You see, Jesus is the one who looks out into the crowd and he spots the humble and the insignificant and the undeserving person and he chooses to bless them because of his grace. He doesn't look for the successful. He doesn't look for the victor. He looks for those who are downtrodden. He looks for those who have been beaten up by life. He looks for those who have failed and we've all failed. The band, can I have you up? You know, when Jacob is, has all of his sons here before him, we can imagine that you know, he's looking over the line of his people of his sons, you know, and they're all stood there. And they're all stood there in their own character and in, in their own way, with their own personality. And Jack, if you can, you can play that, that'd be great. We've got Reuben standing there, Reuben the power hungry. He's standing there, puffing his chest out, trying to draw attention to himself. Trying to, you know, hoping that he'll get something from this, from this encounter. We've got Simeon and Levi stood there with their arms folded, with frowns on their faces, just angry, just angry dudes. We've got Is- Issachar, all scruffy looking, stood there with a bad posture. We've got Joseph stood there with his head held high, standing there maturely. And, Jod- and Judah stood there with his, with his head bowed low because he, he knows what he's done. He knows who he is. He knows he doesn't really deserve anything. But it's like God in that moment, through Jacob, reached out and lifts up Judah's head and says, you, the undeserving, you, the wretch, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this promise. And, 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 and your name your tribe is going to bear my son. Is it, my, my son, the savior of the world, is going to come from you. And he will be called the lion, the tribe, the lion of the tribe of Judah. How amazing is that? That God just pours out his grace onto this guy. So when people look at your life, what do you think they would characterize you by? What's, what, what qualities would they pull from you? What, 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 what flavor would they know from you? If someone who doesn't really know you, doesn't really know you by name, doesn't really know who you are, or, but they know something of your life. They know, oh yeah, I know that kind of fellow. I know him by face. This is what I think of him. This is what I think of her. Would they look at you and think one who is power hungry, eager for control, someone who has a bit of a temper issue, one who is lazy and complacent, someone who is worldly successful and mature, or someone's life, someone whose life is saturated with Christ. See, that's what we want. That's what our, we want our lives to be characterized with. We want our lives to be characterized with Christ. Not that we're any good. Not that we've succeeded. Not that we're victorious. But that actually, if there's any success or any victory in life, it's only because of him in us. But that our lives are saturated and, it, and Christ just permeates from our life. And that if someone just knows us barely, they think, wow, yeah, this guy loves Jesus. This girl loves Jesus. Hey, yeah, you know, that single mum, yeah, I can tell she loves really, she really loves Jesus. That guy who's just claimed his pension, you know, and is spending his time working for the church or, or, or helping those in need, I can tell you he loves Jesus. We want our lives to be characterized with Christ. So what in your life do you need to start putting away? What in your life do you need to start knocking on its head and saying, I don't want to be, I don't want to be known for that anymore. I don't want to be characterized by that anymore. You know, the sin that, str- that I'm struggling with, I, I don't want to be known for that. I want to be characterized by Christ. Let's stand tonight and I'll pray for you guys. Yeah, Jesus, we just thank you for your grace. We just thank you for your amazing mercy, God, which you poured out on, on us so undeservingly. God, we just stand before you, God, at your mercy. God, and yet we receive your grace. We receive your love, Lord. 
Lord, that you would be willing to love the unlovable. Lord, that you would be, be willing to take us as failures, God, and, and, and exalt us to become victors alongside you. And how amazing that is. And yet, Lord, I know, Lord, that we are weak, Lord, and that our hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, and that the decisions that we make are, uh, are so often not in accordance with your will or with your heart for us. And Lord, and that our lives can be characterized by the sin that we struggle with, whether it's laziness or whether it's, whether it's apathy or whether it's a greed or a lust issue, Lord. And Lord, and that sin can entangle us, God, and characterize our lives, God. But I pray, Lord, that you would, that by your power, Lord, that you would release us from those things. Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, might, might give us the self-control, the spirit control to live that holy life for you, Lord. And that people might look at our lives, Lord, and, and that we might be characterized by Christ. We might be characterized by your kingdom. That we would be characterized by grace and by love and by mercy. And that people would know us to, to be a people of, of your name, to be a people of your kingdom. Lord, we don't want to be known, known by any other thing, just, but just by you, Lord not even just to be worldly successful. I don't want anyone to look at my life and just to think, yeah, Josh was worldly successful. Josh made it in life. I'd rather people know, Lord, that I'm a repentant, Lord. Lord, that I failed miserably, but Lord, that you have redeemed me. So God, would our lives be characterized by you? Yeah, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.